The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good friend and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how's it going? Good. Ready to roll, John. Ready to roll. And there's lots to roll on about because we are going to be talking about Chelsea. We've got Sam from London is Blue podcast on with us this week. Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? I mean, Chelsea are such a polarizing club and their approach has been viewed on on all ends of the spectrum. Chaos, youth, injuries. Everybody has opinions. But Sam kind of sifts through all the noise and gives us a clearer picture of the state of the club and really their vision under Todd Bowley and Pochettino. Yeah, and I think they're a super interesting club precisely because they are such an unknown quantity right now. They have, as you said, been taken over by that Clear Lake Capital ownership group in the last couple of seasons. They put a lot of money into the club, but we've not really seen the sort of rate of return that you might want when you put that amount of money into a football club. So definitely one to keep an eye on. And uh, yeah, the best thing for us to do, I think, is to just go straight to Sam and listen to what he has to say about Chelsea. Over the course of the last decade or so, Chelsea Football Club have been used to competing at the highest level of European football. And with the arrival of a new ownership group at the beginning of last season in Clear Lake Capital, an ownership group who seemed happy to splash the cash around, it seemed as though this trajectory could continue. But it hasn't really happened that way. Instead, Chelsea have burned through a few managers and a few players within a season and a bit and are still looking to hit the levels that most of their fans expect of them. This summer, though, a new era was heralded in at the club, the Maurizio Pochettino era with the Argentine signing a two-year contract with the option of an extra year. What have we made of the Pochettino era so far? Well, fortunately, we're joined by someone who can help us navigate through the ups and downs of Pochettino's early days at Chelsea. Sam from London is Blue Podcast is here. Sam, welcome onto the show. Oh, thank you so much, John. First of all, I would like to say what an absolute privilege it is uh, to be here with you, first of all. Um, not a lot of people know, but obviously this um podcast was sort of my go-to tactic bible for the longest time and i was learning the tricks of the trade as a as a young reporter for espn so uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done since then um it's been an absolute joy an absolute pleasure so please forgive me if i'm a little nervous it's just i am realizing a dream here just by being here so so yeah thanks and i'm really really honored to be here yeah well it's my pleasure to have you on We are going to break this episode down into three parts. So we're going to start off by looking at last season and the summer. Uh, Obviously, things haven't gone as well as maybe people expected since the takeover at the beginning of last season. And uh, we'll have to rip off those uh, those bandages and cover that topic, I'm afraid, at the beginning. But that will give us a nice bedrock then to jump into the next section, which will be about the season so far under Maurizio Pochettino and then in the final section we will move on to talk about the future of the Pochettino era at Chelsea but let's start right at the beginning of the Clear Lake Capital takeover and talk a little bit about what went wrong since that happened so yes I'm really interested to hear your bird's eye perspective now looking back over the time since Clear Lake Capital took over at Chelsea and what you think went wrong in the last season. I think it would be easier to tell you what did not go wrong John it's just Everything was a catastrophic mess from, from top to bottom. We had, I think, four managers with each of them providing a plethora of reasons. I wouldn't say excuses in terms of what was fundamentally wrong. But in terms of just isolating those particular factors, I would say that an extremely bloated squad, numbering close to 33, 34, was one that was isolated by each one of those managers, saying that it was impossible to train a group that was that big. 
Um, then 48 injuries over the course of the season, which was the most in the Premier League for a second season running. And this was after 97 injuries in the season before, which was the most injuries in um, the top five leagues. So that's been a recurring theme. Uh, Lampard also pointed out that the physical standards were on the floor. A lot of players who did not want to be there, the effort was not there. So again, in terms of individual personnel and the kind of output they were providing, there was a major issue there as well. Uh, we also have to touch upon 38 goals scored over 38 games, which was um, 76th out of 98 teams in the top five leagues. So um, let's not go deeper and, and trigger my PTSD there, but was, it was absolutely shambolic um, there. But um, it was also quite telling that none of our players reached double figures for goals and assists combined, leave alone goals or assists separately. So we were suffering in terms of firepower. And I would say the last point would be shocking individual drop-offs. So Mount, who was arguably our talisman in in forward zones, um, did really well in in his first season, second season. Uh, just had his worst season since his debut. And Harvard's, I think, post his Champions League heroics, the, the patience just ran out with him. He was not providing anything, no goals, no assists, no sort of combination play. It just looked like everybody was, was at Debit's end as to what he's supposed to develop into. Then Jorginho Kovacic, where in perennial decline, we felt like there was a midfield you could just waltz through. Any any midfield opposition with a half decent midfield could just walk past that midfield. And obviously the best player we had there in Golo Kante was just injured all the time. So that was also an issue. And Mendy and Kepa, uh, both were doing their best to come third in a two-horse race. So <laughs> the goalkeeper situation was also very, very bad. So yeah, summed up. I think those were all the issues. A lot of significant ones, but that's what the new ownership inherited when they stepped in. So for you, looking back over that time period with uh, hindsight bias, obviously, but the summer that's just gone as well, how many of those problems would you say have been solved now this summer? That's a tough question. I think we would have to revisit this sometime later in the season, but I would say for a start, probably around 65 to 70%, I would say, in terms of um, trying to take proactive steps to address them. I think three quarters of them, um, as good as you could, you, you just tried doing the best steps possible. The squad was cut down brutally from 33, 34 to 25, which was what Pochettino was reiterating throughout preseason, saying, I want a smaller squad. I want players to, to basically leave. And that's exactly what happened before the season began. Uh, Pochettino, Jesus Perez and his team are also known for their excellent strength and conditioning. Uh, there's also this great Sky Sports interview where uh, Jamie Carragher asks Pochettino about this and, and the stats were that in the 13-14 season, Southampton topped the distance per game in the Premier League with 117.3 kilometres and Spurs were last that season with 106.9. Fast forward two years and Poch has taken over Spurs and in his second, third and fourth season that climbed to second in the Premier League with an average of around 115 kilometres. So, um, I know distance stats don't sort of like hold a lot of stock, but just in terms of what his requirements are physically from his teams in terms of the high intensity, um, counter-pressing, pressing style that he has, the aggressive front foot defending, just upping that physical flow has been has been a great, great uh, plus for us. It was something that was massively off-key last season. Just everybody could tell that we didn't have a press. We just didn't. And I think that's improved. And we probably got the best people in the business outside of those already employed who could correct that. Um, and I think going from a very haphazard signing strategy, so our first window was Khalidu Kulibari, we had uh, Marco Correa, 
We had Raheem Sterling. And after that, basically, the club said we need a more uniform strategy, something that looks more long term rather than making educated guesses. So we've got a really good, strong recruitment team in Lawrence Stewart from Monaco. We got Paul Vin Stanley from Brighton and we got Joe Shields from Southampton. So we've been basically trying to get 15 to 23 year old players um, from across Europe who are arguably one season away from hitting the big time. So we're identifying them early and we're trying to give them a little bit of breathing space, a little bit of time to develop on loan before we see if if they're good enough to go into the first team. So I think that strategy has changed. Uh, it's too too early, I think, to appraise positively whether that's going to work. But I think just in terms of the profile of signings that we've made, for example, Cole Palmer, who we got for $47 million, but is increasingly looking like a very good deal, I think is is a nice change in strategy compared to a, a sort of like hit and miss one that we had for the longest time, even under Roman Abramovich. Mm. Um, so that's about it. I think these two things have, have taken um, a nice route towards where we would like to be, but obviously there are still still gaps to address. Yeah, and it's worth saying, I think, at this point that in terms of being able to solve particularly the squad issues, a lot of this came out of the fact that there was an emergence of a new strategy in the Saudi Arabian League, uh, and that actually helped you to dig yourself out of a hole, really, in terms of the first uh, season's approach to squad building, right? Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that we did get a little bit of help. So we offloaded Koulibaly to Al-Hilal and then Mendy to Al-Ali for a combined 41.5 million euros. So it was actually pretty good. Um, we wanted Kante to be around. There was a lot of talk around the club saying that he was regaining fitness and he was getting away from his injury troubles. But he again had an injury last moment. And I think the club just completely went the other direction and said it's just safer to offload somebody who was on record wages at the club. So the Saudi Arabian deals basically worth 41.5 was a good bonus, I would say. But the best business came from our PL rivals who gave us 115.3 for Kai Havertz, Jorginho and uh, Matteo Kovacic. I, I would say like starting caliber players who were declining a year on year and it just looked like good bit of business to not just offload them, but get a good amount of money for them as well. Yeah, and it wasn't just the fact that you'd move players on, it just gives you a lot more scope to bring in players into your squad as well. So it sounds as though you've been fairly happy with some of the signings that Chelsea made over the summer, but how happy were you overall with the players that were brought in over the summer? Yeah, I think the outgoing players were, were very beneficial in committing what I would say is corporate espionage. We basically weakened, I would say, Manchester City and Arsenal a little bit, giving them Kai Havertz. They're still figuring out where to, to plug and play him. Uh, they could have gone for better players, but... Um, in terms of just looking at optics, in terms of the players coming in, um, I've I've had a mixed bag. I would say that some moves have directly addressed certain problem areas. For example, Kaiseru is arguably a clear upgrade on anything we've had barring a fully fit Kante. I would say probably the best defensive-minded option since we had Nemanja Matic at the club. So I think that's something that is a clear upgrade. Like There is no question across any fan that he has bought qualities that we just didn't have in midfield. Uh, Christopher Nkunku was signed last season, but um, looks very, very good in preseason, fit the team very well. Um, and I would say is arguably the best finisher in the squad. So I think he addresses a good need. And in a very distorted striker market, getting Nico Jackson, who has exceeded expectations despite a pretty rocky start, I would say is is a good deal. He's 22 years old. We got him for $37 million. And um, he is a late bloomer. He's not really a centre forward. He's played most of his career on the wing. So I think getting somebody who you could 
take a little bit of a, a bet on and try to develop him and nurture him over the course of a season, I think I'm pretty happy with that. So those things make a lot of sense to me. But there are some other signings that just sort of flip the coin. I'm I'm looking at 62 million for Romeo Lavia and that feels like overkill. I don't really know where he fits considering you already have 200 million starting central midfielders who you can't bench. So I'm looking at where does he go? I can understand certain signings. For example, Leslie Ukuchukwu, who was running down his deal, getting him for 27 million, getting Andre Santos from Brazil, considering his exploits in the in the Brazilian youth teams and, and how promising he looked. Those signings for affordable amounts, yes, absolutely. There is a vision there. There is a strategy there. But Santos is now on loan at Nottingham Forest. He's struggling to make the squad. And there are rumours that he could be called back. So there is a ripple effect of having somebody like a Lavia in for 62 million. So it did look like a move uh, to appease Joe Shields, who knew the player at Man City and Southampton, but not really one benefiting us long term. And other signings, for example, Dizazi has done pretty well. But uh, we have Wesley Fofana there who's injured. We have Trevor Chaloba there who's injured. And uh, even though he's added progression and aerial strength, is he the best RCB option of a title-challenging team? I think the jury is still out on that one. I don't really know. We haven't really faced the caliber of opposition that could arguably go on to exploit him 1v1. But in the games to come, I think there are a lot of ways that that question could be answered. But it's been an interesting back. I would say, like I said, younger signings like Cole Palmer, even though they're a big gamble, they've just hit the ground running and, and gives you a lot of hope that it might still pay off long term. Yeah, and there's obviously been a bit of a change of strategy from last season to this season. Do you think that what you've seen this season suggests that some of the problems that arose in the last transfer window with this summer transfer window in the previous season have actually been ironed out? Well, it has totally sort of like gone a completely different route. So I I still am waiting for a, a longer, larger sample size to to judge it more appropriately. But I would say that it is definitely a younger and fitter squad. Um, it, it just looks like it's more geared towards how Pochettino wants to play. So I think that overall, even though we're still looking at certain things to be improved across the board, it does look like a, a squad that is in the manager's image. And I think that overall helps the unit in, the, in instead of just buying more promising players like we've done in the past. And you've mentioned Pochettino a number of occasions now, and it's arguable he is the most important arrival this summer. What did you make of Pochettino once he was announced, um, before you really had the chance to see what he was about uh, as, the, as the coach of your, your club? Were you pretty positive about the appointment? Yeah, excited. I was I was quite big on him. Uh, we had a couple of other options, but um, those came with um, their own baggage, I would say, like Luis Enrique was there in, in the mix. Uh, Julian Nagelsmann was there in the mix. Uh, but having somebody like Pochettino, who had a proven track record of arguably taking on projects of a similar stature, um, working with younger players, nurturing them, developing them long term, uh, improving them physically, giving them, I would say, an attractive, to the Chelsea fan, attractive style of play was was definitely a big, big plus. And uh, before the appointment was made, there was there was cautious optimism uh, from my end, at least. What I did have certain reservation uh, or, on was like, was he equipped to uh, take charge of the pressure that would come with the Chelsea hot seat? And how much had he evolved post PSG? Because it had been a long, long time since he'd been away from the Premier League. And some of the things that we'd noted in his Tottenham sides would arguably be more subject to exploitation come the Premier League again, like in, in the open era. So 
um, those questions were definitely there. But in terms of finding the right characteristics, like the ownership is consistently said, finding a manager who's got the right ethos of the club in his heart. I think Pochettino just made complete sense to have. Well, we'll talk about Pochettino and the players as they have performed so far this season in the next section. But before we get there, let's just talk a little bit about the the preseason tour because you had the chance to follow Chelsea for part of that preseason tour. What is it that you learned about where the club were at at that point by attending that preseason? Yeah, quite promising. There were there were a lot of promising signs that I was able to gauge up close. I was there for the first open preseason training in North Carolina, and it was absolutely sweltering i don't know why in my head i figured the um, they, like the united states would be a lot more comfortable than it is in india but it was just similar to where i hmm. stay and uh, i was just sweating bullets like throughout the entire session and um, i was just thankful i wasn't on the field hmm. basically he was putting each player through extremely hard sprints uh, a lot of players in particular noticeably enzo fernandez looked like they were 3 kilos lighter leaner stronger so it just looked like they'd been they'd been put through a, a brutal conditioning regime and intensity and application were night and day compared to what we'd seen the previous season and how up for it they looked on on the open training session. Uh, in the media zone, there were a lot of um, I would say a nice sort of cheery kind of mood behind the scenes. I was looking at um, a lot of directors, a lot of sporting directors who were basically high fiving each other after the victory, exchanging pleasantries. I had the pleasure of talking to Daniel Finkelstein, who's a non-executive director on the on the board at Chelsea. And, and he was amazing. Um, and he gave us a lot of his time talking about how he felt about um, the entire thing and how optimistic he was in terms of the project sort of working out. So in terms of atmosphere, the qualms that the previous managers had, it just looked like it had been flipped. But I think that's obvious to sort of a certain considering you've moved on a majority of the players who were responsible for it. So uh, in terms of the mood, I would say it was completely different. And if you're asking about tactics, then I would say that it was arguably Tottenham 2.0. A lot of his tactics that we saw in the preseason were fundamentals borrowed from that side, but perhaps improved upon a little bit. Uh, tried to sort of build upon those principles and make them... Um, take them up to scratch in terms of where he wanted them to be. So we saw a 4 3 one there, a narrow shape in attack and out of possession to maximize a lot of interplay and minimizing distances while pressing. Uh, there were a lot of asymmetrical roles across the field, like one fullback tucking in to become the third centre-back and then the other centre-back, uh, sorry, other fullback on the on the opposing flank was holding maximum width to provide a little bit of attacking thrust in in the attacking third. Then you had one pivot who was a halfback who was dropping into the defense to become the third centre-back. And then you had the other pivot who was a more box-to-box midfielder. So a lot of interesting ideas that have been developed over his time at Tottenham. And uh, something that you really, really like, a hybrid press. Hmm. So 4-2-3-1 um, in the attacking third, which was man-mark. And then after that, spring them into wide pressing traps. And then as soon as possible... Retreat, go into a zonal system, 4-4-2, and then basically try to to break out and explode in the kind of transitions that we'd seen Harry Kane and, and Hyung Min Son pull off. So I would say tactically also it looked really good. We had a very good preseason where we didn't lose anything. So even in terms of from an overall bird's eye perspective, it was extremely optimistic. So I came back very happy. Would you say that the optimism has continued through the season so far, despite the fact that maybe things haven't gone as well as maybe it would have been hoped? 
I'm a I'm a realistic person, John. Let's. I mean, I've got my hopes grounded mm-hmm. completely. I just knew that it was you know you were bound to hit a roadblock somewhere. Let's just say that I wasn't prepared for it this early in the season, but I just knew that somewhere we would struggle to find answers to certain things, and and uh, that's what's exactly what's happened. We've had injury issues, yes, um, but it's also a young, inexperienced squad trying to learn on the fly, and that was always the worry. And a new manager trying to trying to find out what his optimal squad is, who fits where, what kind of changes does he need to make. So I think in terms of an assessment before the season, you know, I had a certain number in mind and, and that stayed consistent. I, I don't think that has changed. Just um, I'm still optimistic. I've been optimistic since even since the bad spell. And I think um, we will get better. There's no doubt about it. So what would you say that your expectations were before the season started? Um, I would say sixth was a realistic expectation for me. Like around sixth was uh, somewhere where we needed to be, where I hoped we'd be. After Nkunku got injured, I would say eighth. <laughs> so hmm. I think uh, between sixth and eighth would be arguably um, a nice number to be at. Well, let's move on then to talk about the season so far. So can I just hear from you, Sam, what your broad brushstroke account of the way that Chelsea's season has gone so far? Um, well, let's just say that he's had to improvise very quickly. So Nkunku was injured in the final preseason game. Reese James was injured in the first game. Kani Chupomeka was injured in the second game. Um, and then Kaiser came in um, in like the dying minute. So immediately you had, I would say, four or five outfielders who were part of the the preseason final 11 and then suddenly were just out of the picture altogether. So he had to figure out how to put together an 11 that would arguably resemble some of the principles he had in mind, but without losing the same kind of quality. And I think that's proven difficult. Um, what he did from the first game was he shifted Levi Colville to left back in a hybrid role. So it's basically when there are three centre-backs, he moves into a centre-back position, but he's also tasked with attacking in a four. He overlaps from time to time uh, to try and give Mudrik a little bit of freedom. So it's been a new role for him. We also saw Ben Chilwell, who was used at left wing, which sparked off an entire debate in the Chelsea fan base saying, what exactly is Pochettino doing? We've got Raheem Sterling, we've got... You know, Kani Tukumeka, we've got so many guys and he's playing, you know, a fullback at left wing. So that happened. Uh, we ended up having no attacking midfielder with no Nkunku, with no Chukumeka. So he shifted Enzo Fernandez to, to number 10, uh, presumably to add a little bit of incisiveness in the final third. And um, those decisions basically became the crux of the argument saying he he's out of his depth. He does not know what to do. You know, we're losing because of it. But I think he's done little wrong. Uh, if you were to ask for my 10 cents of it, I just think that those are ideas that were well thought out, but just didn't come off. A lot of complaints about Chilwell playing an attack over someone like Mudrik, but Chilwell ended up creating the third most chances for us uh, with nine. He's one behind Sterling, who has played 300 minutes more. And he's three behind Enzo, who has 350 minutes more. Uh, then you talk about Enzo playing at 10. Uh, he still remains the leading progressive passer in the Premier League with 83, ahead of the other Fernandes, uh, Bruno. And uh, before the first international break, he was one of the leading shot creators with 11 in four games. Um, this is attacking midfield at number 10 and in a deeper position combined. But after a grueling trip to South America and a quite disorienting game in La Paz at, at, in Bolivia, he created one in his next four. 
And I think that's where things are going bad. You know, thoughtful decisions sort of also come under fire. So I think overall the numbers were very good. It just, it just felt like things weren't going our way. Unfortunately, like to give you an example, there are only two players out of four hundred and forty-nine in the Premier League who have underperformed their expected goals by two. One is Nicholas Jackson, and the other is Enzo Fernandez. So I mean, you can't write that kind of script. I, I, how much of it can you blame on Pochettino? So I would say that certain numbers haven't gone our way. We haven't capitalized on things we should have, but like I would suggest, if the numbers are going well and if there's a little bit of underperformance, there is reason for optimism. So hopefully, it'll get better. Yes, and fundamental to the season so far has been a tactical shift that took place from the beginning of the season to the more recent games. So, could you talk us through that shift? And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what prompted that shift as well. Would you say some of it is injury, some of it is tactical, and Pochettino figuring out how much he wants to set up his midfield? Yeah, I think there is a crisis in every opportunity, um, and then in every opportunity there's a crisis. So uh, I think he zeroed in on that solution very, very quickly. Um, Enzo's form dropping in that advanced position, and then realizing that he had no other option to try at number ten, he just decided to move from this four-two-three-one shape that he was using to a more four-three-three. I would say the positioning of those midfielders sort of shifted, so he dragged Enzo back a little. And it ended up just giving Enzo and、uh, Conor Gallagher their optimal positions. We've seen Gallagher play that right-sided eight role for Crystal Palace when he ended up scoring eight times and and managing four assists. So that's a role that's very familiar to him. It's something that he enjoys doing. He enjoys that responsibility from back to front. And Enzo sort of like coming a little deeper allowed him to orchestrate a bit more, give him a little more time. Uh, not have that much pressure in terms of creating in and being at the end of goal scoring opportunities. I think that helped him a little bit as well. And getting that three man midfield with that level of balance and in profiles that you have between Kaiseido, Enzo, and Gallagher, it just gave us、um, a nudge towards a four three three as the as the ideal opposition. So that worked. And simultaneously, because we just did not have any fullbacks, we lost Chilwell, we lost James, Gusto got suspended. So our fullbacks were actually Levi Colville and Marco Correa, and both of them, for stylistic reasons, don't like overlapping. So we had two very static fullbacks, so there wasn't any support for the attackers up front. And what the two eights then provided were sort of these wide overload issues. Conor Gallagher, for example, was able to overlap, was able to offer runs inside these inseam runs towards the box that weren't happening before because he was slightly deeper and he had to support Kaiser. So. It actually freed him up from from interacting with Palmer a little bit more. Mudrik then had a little bit of freedom with Enzo Fernandez, giving him a little bit of support on the left hand side. So it actually freed up our attack a little little bit more as well. So I think these little changes that have happened throughout、um, actually gave us、um, more tactical freedom. It optimized certain player roles and positions. So I think that's one shift that has happened very very well.、Uh, the other change I would say that has happened over the last two three games has been. I think a conscious decision to scale back aggression and surrender possession. So, with opposition like West Ham and Forest,、um, we had I think seventy five percent of the possession against both of them, and they just collapsed into a low block and they denied us space. They completely knew that without transitions and without any space to attack, we basically struggled for solutions. So,、um, what we tried doing in the last two games was we dropped. Our intensity. We just didn't want to to scare them into a low block anymore. So、uh, we tried to sort of sit back, make sure that they wandered out, and then try to hit them on transition. So according to Understat, for example, Chelsea's PPDA across the last four games was six point five four. 
the first four games were 6.54, and that's lower than BSR's uh, murder ball loving leads was at its peak. Uh, so it's it's a really really good number. And then across the last two games against Fulham and Burnley, uh, it has dropped to 10.56. So there is a four path difference between the PPDAs, and it's just been um, I would say yeah, a thought out sort of work around to try and give our attackers more space to attack, more more space to run into. I'm not sure this is a viable long-term strategy, but uh, in the last two games, it has definitely worked against sides who I would say can be a little defensively naive. And it's worth saying that PPDA, as the number gets higher, that's you're allowing more passes per defensive action. So the, the press is reducing in intensity. But you've mentioned a few things there which we should... Um, talk about. So I want to start talking about where the midfield personnel issues because I think that was the first thing that you mentioned there. So you said that what we've seen happening recently is Caicedo sort of playing in the deeper role, Enzo Fernandez being closer to him and, and Gallagher pushing forward. What do you think that Pochettino's ideal midfield looks like? Do you think this is what it is? Is this what we're going to see for the rest of the season? I think that's a that's a huge dilemma and I would not want to be in Poch's position. Uh, absolutely. I think... Um, the most consistent performer since preseason has been Conor Gallagher. And on current form, he looks, I would say, undroppable. He's just added so much balance to our midfield. He looks far more confident technically. He is superb out of possession, quality and quantity-wise. So he he definitely looks like a vital cog in that midfield. Uh, you've also got Kani Chukumeka, who slotted in at number 10 in that 4-2-3-1. And he was showing some really promising signs. He turns 20 in a couple of days, so he's still got a long way of learning and growing to do. Um, I don't know if Pochettino reverts to his 4-2-3-1, uh, and that would indicate that he needs to drop either Gallagher or Mudrik to fit Nkunku. And um, he could either do that or he could stay with the 4-3-3, where he moves Nkunku to the left-hand side and then brings him inside to make the kind of diamond or box midfield with the other three central midfielders that was tried out in preseason. So I would say tactically he has two options available to him, but it also entails there being a couple of pretty important casualties. So Gallagher hasn't signed his new contract. So if he is then pushed out, that means that we're definitely moving on from him. And obviously you want Mudrik to get enough confidence to grow and become the player that we think he's going to become. So you can't bench him. So, um, important decision to make there but right now the three-man midfield is working for us in an injury crisis so just trying to enjoy it while it lasts this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time sounds like a real game changer if you ask us Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And another injury crisis that has happened has been the to the fullback position. Uh, you mentioned already that Chilwell and James both out through injury and then there was that suspension for Malagusto. How has Pochettino dealt with these absences and how much do you think it's held, held Chelsea back during this period? I think he's done very well to... Um, stem what could have been a, a far more important crisis. But again, we 
just to keep my feet grounded, we haven't faced the caliber of opposition that could have ended up exploiting those issues. So right now it looks like Kukureya is at right back. So he basically did a pretty good job in the EFL Cup against Brighton in the second half. And that earned him a ticket at right back. So he's played there in, in Malagusto's absence. On the left-hand side, it looks like uh, you've got Colville, who's a nailed-on starter. And and you've also got the tactical role responsibility in terms of if you want to shift, then you can also play Benoit Badiashil, who's got experience at left-back. He's played as a left-centre-back. So um, I think there's an option there if if you want to play him. Uh, Ian Martin hasn't been played at the left-back position since his time at Burnley. He's just been, I think, Poch sees him more as an attacking presence. He also has not signed his new contract. So I think he's just been left out uh, to try and, and push him into doing something or improving as a player. So I think there are a lot of uh, issues there. But I would say that on the right-hand side is where the issue is. Luckily, Gusto is out for, I think, one more game and we have him back. But like I said, I think just getting three midfielders in with two given more advanced responsibilities to contribute in attack did help alleviate the kind of thrust that you need from your fullbacks. I would say Reese James is one of our only one or two world-class players. He himself runs the entire flank. He also offers great goal-scoring presence. So we are missing a lot of the attacking thrust that he brings. But in terms of trying to offer a contingency measure, he's done the best that he can. So um, I think that we've done well this far. But in the run of games that we have coming up next, I think that's when the vulnerabilities might start to show. You put... Martinelli against Kukurea, I think there's only going to be one winner. So, um, fingers crossed. You've mentioned that Ben Chilwell has been played as a left winger, effectively, and Jan Matson as well, also a player who many people thought of as being a fullback, but has been played further up by Pochettino as well. What do you think is behind that decision to play those two players as more advanced attacking players? Interestingly, Pochettino has said in an interview that it's about balance. Uh, he does see Chilwell as somebody who's um, a defender who can attack. So he's basically able to contribute a lot in terms of pressing, counter-pressing situations, but also able to offer a lot of off-the-ball issues. I think one thing that really made sense was the game against West Ham, where uh, instead of Mudrik, when he started, there was a conscious attempt to try and get Chilwell 1v1 against Vladimir Sufal on the on the far post when the ball was on the right-hand side. You effectively tried to get him at the far post for headers. And there were two headers that Chilwell managed and one just went off the post. So there were some issues in terms of interpreting how that left side works. So I think just tactically, I think he views Chilwell as a better fit than somebody who's tactically naive like Mikhail Mudrik. But like with the injury, I think now it's given him no other option but to play the more attacking Mikhailo Mudrik and he has to rely on that and I don't think it's the worst decision that can be. I think you want Mudrik to get better and he isn't going to do that on the bench and uh, he has shown certain improvements already over the past two, three games in terms of interpreting how his role should be played, trying to take the good things from, from Ben Chilwell's interpretation of the role. Hopefully that carries on over the season and we'll see a a more sturdy version, a more tactically aware version of the Mudrik that we're seeing right now. You've mentioned Mudrik there. He is one of a group of young players around the Chelsea starting eleven. Uh, another one you've mentioned is is Cole Palmer. There's Nicholas Jackson, Malagusto, Armando Breuer, um, and even Conor Gallagher is only, I think, 23. So a lot of young players uh, around the Ch- Chelsea squad right now. How well do you think Pochettino has integrated these younger players into the team? 
I think he's treated each one differently, which is a testament to his man management skills. Um, in the North Carolina Open training, he showed both, like the velvet glove and the iron fist to Diego Moreira. So there was this one training drill where he was asking the winger to come inside and basically switch it to the other side with these um, mannequins in the middle to try and block passing lanes. And Moreira ended up hitting the mannequin twice while trying to switch the ball. And in the view of, I would say, a couple of thousand people, uh, Pochettino just let fly. You know, he just said, Moreira, what are you doing? You know, you're not supposed to do this. And there was a lot of scolding in open play. There was a lot of chastising. And um, he does seem to offer that. He tends to offer a very aggressive approach. But he also backed Moreira over the next preseason games to start and try to prove that he can correct those mistakes in real game situations. So that's something that we we saw. Uh, Gusto was a consistent uh, starter in preseason. He's, I think, stepped up well in James' absence. The red was, I would say, a bit harsh, but fair, if the VAR is consistent with it throughout. Um, and there was this instance, for example, with Noni Madueke, where there was a video of him parting while recovering from injury that was leaked on social media. And um, post that, Poch just dropped him from the squad. And when he was asked about it, he stressed that he expects all the younger players to avoid such situations and maintain certain standards in the squad. While he also stressed in the same interview that, you know, Noni was trading very, very hard and he was in contention for the next game. So I think balancing it, knowing that a young player is prone to those kind of temptations and making sure that he understands the transgression, giving him a chance to improve, I think, has is, is been a nice hallmark um, of how he's dealt with the younger players. Mudrik, like you mentioned, has arguably been the most intriguing case study of, of all of them. Um, I would assume that seeing Chilwell start over him at left wing would have left to some confidence issues, 100%. But uh, after his first start for Bournemouth, he did say that Mudrik needed to show some better understanding of the game. He said to try and be more connected with the team, which I believe was a spot-on assessment of, of where he was. Now, behind the scenes, there is apparently a nice 1v1 crossbar challenge that Poch regularly competes uh, with Mudrik uh, and tries to build his confidence. And Mudrik basically said, I'm not playing with you because you keep winning. And um, there was this one instance where Pochettino said, today was the first day that he drew with me on the crossbar challenge. And the next league game, Mudrik went on to score his debut goal. So it's like Pochettino says about Mudrik, you can't buy confidence at the supermarket. You need to create these little situations to provide confidence and belief and trust. And I think that's what he's doing with uh, with Mudrik. Probably something that we've seen between Pep and Foden as well. Certain improvements to be made, uh, inconsistent game time, but ensuring that certain instructions are carried out to the fullest and that game requirements are understood in the highest order before you do anything else. So I think that's what's happening with Mudrik. But across the young player spectrum, he's dealt with everyone differently and i think it's it's improved us for the good i think it's it's proven to be a very nice strategy so far the i think other aspect of chelsea season so far that we do need to talk about is the finishing problem that they've had um, because as you already mentioned a couple of strikers that have been playing for chelsea have uh, wildly underperformed their underlying numbers for eight games in um we'll get to the numbers themselves in a minute but I guess the opening question has to be how bad has Christopher Nkunku's injury impacted Chelsea's season? Do you expect him to have been played as the striker? And I guess even if not, 
do you think him being in the team would mean that Chelsea would be in a maybe a little bit more healthy position in the table? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like ordering a pepperoni pizza and discovering there's no pepperoni on it. It's just been quite tragic. Um, I was very, very hopeful. Um, not just because, you know, of his numbers. He has 36 goals and 17 assists in his last 59 league games. But in terms of how well Poch had profiled his strengths and weaknesses in preseason, um, it just looked like it was... The system was a perfect fit for him. It just looked like he was playing um, just off Nicholas Jackson. So Nkunku, in my opinion, has just played best when he's with a more central presence. He's able to run off the centre forward, try to pick his spaces, try to pick spaces in between the last line and the second line. So these pockets where he loves to pick up the ball and then attack the last line. So that's the kind of system that Poch had built for him. Um, he was also using Jackson as a foil for long balls in behind uh, for Nkunku to run on to. And uh, that also seemed to be a very viable strategy. And then even going as far as to use Nkunku in the front two of a 4-4-2 to ensure that he wouldn't exert himself defensively. A lot of the weaknesses, I would say, in Nkunku's pressing were just his intensity drops off after a while. He doesn't track fully. He tends to do it in spells. So I think just negating that part of the game and asking him to do simple instructions proved to be a quite comprehensive understanding of his profile. So it did look like he would end up being an exceptional unifier in attack, somebody who would not just contribute exceptional finishing. Like I said, I think he's the best finisher in the squad, but also providing assists and creating shots for the other guys in the front line. I think that's what we've lacked, quality chances. Uh, we've not been prolific in terms of creating shots. Um, I was looking at the numbers, I think, a couple of weeks back, and both Manchester City, Arsenal... Even United tend to have like numbers, uh, a lot of players who offer more than double digits in shot creating actions. Um, and we're the only one with two. Uh, I think United also has Fernandez on 22 and the next one is, I think, somebody at nine. So there's a huge disparity there. But in terms of just consistently having somebody who's able to offer that volume of chance creation, that volume of threat by, by himself, I think that's something that we've missed desperately in attack. So... Um, huge miss and it's going to be until he comes back in Jan, Feb. Well, let's talk a little bit about those underlying numbers then because despite their league position, Chelsea's underlying numbers have actually remained fairly consistently good throughout the season. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Obviously, on the one hand, it's questions of uh, getting players to finish better. So do you think that Chelsea are just getting unlucky or do you think there are underlying issues that are actually impacting the numbers themselves? I would go for the safe answer and say there are plenty of both. Um, but I'm also inclined to say slightly more unlucky purely because this early in the season, we were already like without 12 first team players at one point. Um, if you look at our ideal 11, Reese James, Chilwell, Fofana, Nkunku, Badia Shield, Gusto are all starting caliber players and we're already missing them at this point in time. Um, and even with that taken into consideration, I would say we've done pretty well. We have scoffed a lot of chances. We've fluffed our lines a couple of times. We should have done better in situations, but I do feel like it's just a team that's frosty around the edges, needs a little bit of like polishing, needs a little bit of confidence. There's an astounding amount of PL inexperience in the side also, John. It just looks like, you know, everybody is living life a little on the edge. It feels like anxiety is also playing into it. So um, I hope that it would it would improve over time. I've seen Jackson's numbers towards the end of last season in La Liga and they were phenomenal. And there were a lot of questions in the Chelsea community in terms of, is it sustainable? Is he really a really good finisher with either foot or did he just enjoy a spell 
that a lot of like one hit wonders do and then you know fade into oblivion so those questions obviously remain is quality sustainable over a long term but i think we've we've been tremendously unlucky we've played well uh, we've also made adjustments where necessary and i think that certain players are already showing signs of being more confident and and better over time so hopefully over the next 6 7 games that will materialize into into something substantial mm. the other part of the argument i would say is that the upcoming fixtures are not as kind as the first few that we've had um we essentially play brentford arsenal tottenham city newcastle brighton and united in the space of a month and a half um and our defense hasn't been put under long spells of pressure um, we are yet to offer decisive solutions against stubborn blocks so i think those issues could come to the fore and you know there's there's never um this possibility that that you would go past unscathed i think there's every possibility that we might get a 4-0 hiding somewhere that's not out of the question but um Yeah, I think that this particular run of fixtures, the six-seven run of games that we have coming up, uh, that could arguably define the upper level, the upper ceiling of our team, and I think that will give us an understanding of where this team can go in the next couple of months. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we have seen Chelsea doing basically what you'd expect a team of that caliber to do in some of these games against some of the bottom half sides, putting up decent numbers and not conceding a huge amount as well. Have you seen enough from? Chelsea so far to sort of make a prediction as to how some of those games against the top 6 are going to go at this point. Um I think we would probably benefit a little from being a team that tends to do well against defenses that aren't stubborn and then sit back into a low block. We did see a lot of evidence against that when we were playing Liverpool in the first game. We started off very very anxiously but when we did pick up steam we were giving people all kinds of trouble we were isolating defenders one we one near the halfway line we were running into space all the time we've got attackers now that can offer the kind of trouble that with all due respect timo werner kai havertz could not uh, hakim ziyech for example just could not offer one we one issues and i think we are now built towards like i said a side that resembles what tottenham did in their initial seasons you had obviously players who were very very good running in behind and obviously players who could play those passes in behind now we have enough of both in terms of profiles we've got enzo we've got a very progressive backline levi colville for example i think has some of the best over the top long balls that i've seen in the premier league so then you've got those caliber of players I and mean, when you've got nico jackson and mudrick and and the likes running in behind then there is hope that you can cause a lot of trouble to these teams i think our defense is good I think Silva could be an issue in the coming months but we do not have a center back fit to replace him. So um hopefully that sort of comes to the fore and we can switch it around a little bit maybe get Wesley Fofana in maybe get Benoit Badiashile in and see how that works overall. But um I think I am optimistic that we will be able to either sustain or even better our level of scoring against this caliber of opponent. Well let's start moving to think a little bit about the future of Chelsea under Maurizio Pochettino. So firstly just this season. So having seen eight games so far as the time of recording, how would you say that your expectations have changed in terms of what you want to see this team doing over the course of the rest of the season? I think there will be a lot of highs and lows. There will definitely be more issues and a lot of different issues that we've uh, compared to what we've seen so far. But um I I think that all of it sort of like comes down boils down to the same point that we might end up finishing um just past 6th or 7th i think that's the prediction that i've made and a lot of other sides are struggling as well i think brighton have hit 
certain issues of their own. A lot of our competitors in those in those zones, you know, are showing hot and cold performances overall. So I think there will be a lot of chaos in this season of the Premier League, and uh, we might just end up capitalizing on it as the dark horses and and get into a spot where we're not expected to be. So hopefully that'll be fourth or fifth, but wouldn't be disappointed if it's sixth. Don't let uh, any Chelsea fan hear that. <laughs> and then obviously you're still in the uh, Carabao Cup. You are still in the FA Cup. What are your expectations from those two competitions? Do you want to see Chelsea going deep or is this more about just solidifying yourself over the course of the Premier League season and, and seeing where you end up by the end of it? No, I will be delusional here and say that we definitely deserve um, a deep cup run. I think that is a necessity. Uh, definitely, I think we stand a better chance in knockout competitions where um, one points are not incentivized. I think you can afford to be a little more open and then those games tend to play into the kind of side that we are, I think the kind of side that we are building. So I do believe that especially say in the Carabao Cup, we could put together maybe a semi-final, final performance if we end up performing to where we should. Um, there definitely has to be a maximizing of every single game that we can. I'm I'm a little upset that we don't have, say, for example, Conference League. It would have been a great competition for such a young side to get exposure to. Um we end up sort of, uh, whenever we get into the Europa League, we've won it, so twice. So I think that would have been a nice competition to start off this this lovely adventure with as well. So I think being not being in those competitions, not having at least a little bit of European exposure does hurt us. So I think if we do get that position next season, it wouldn't be the end of the world, but our supporters tend to have um, slightly lofty expectations. Like I said, sometimes delusional expectations in terms of where we need to be, where we should be. But I would say that there's every chance that we get to the final of one of those cups and put together a good run. Now, no doubt a lot of non-Chelsea fans are going to roll their eyes at this question, but I'm interested to hear where you think this squad needs some work, whether you think this squad needs some works and, and where you would expect that improvement to come. And yeah, do you think we could even see some incomings in January that will solve some of the problems that we've talked about already this evening? I think a lot of us have reached saturation point in terms of just incomings and outgoings. Uh, half of them have deleted football manager for good reason. Um, <laughs> I would say that there are a couple of places for improvement. But again, it's just eight games into the season and we just do not know where half of these young players are going to be come the end of the year. So I think it's still too early to talk about it. But going purely by the eight to ten game sample that we have right now, I would say centre forward is maybe a position where we can strengthen. When I look at Armando Breuer and when I look at Nico Jackson, there is potential for upgrade there especially considering the profile of centre-forwards that are available in the market. I think there's every chance that we go into January and try to lay the groundwork for a summer deal. Um, Victor Osimhen, for example, is out of contract in 2025. Uh, we all know he's had a pretty well-publicised fallout with the club regarding social media posts, so you don't know what's going to happen there. Um, Antonio Conte could be manager. That That's always a, a good reason to push out of the club, so <laughs> I don't know if that happens. Uh, we've also got some nice other candidates, for example. I've, I've been watching Benjamin Sheshko very, very closely. Um, I think within a year, year and a half, he could be a force to reckon with. And he's getting good game time. He's following the Haaland trajectory at the Red Bull clubs. Uh, Luis Openda over there is also doing a, a pretty good job. So I think those two forwards I definitely have my eyes on. But it, just in terms of the number nine profile, we don't have a pure center forward. Somebody who just wants to get into the box and and score 15, 20 goals a season. I don't think we have that. 
I think we need it. Um, but that again is dependent on how well Jackson develops and whether Breuer can recover from his ACL injury and come back with massive improvements. I think he also needs to do a lot of work to be the, the caliber of number nine we need. But there are two promising young forwards. It's just that there are other ones who can arguably offer more in the market. So maybe a center forward is where we need to look at. But that's the profile that I would want to strengthen. I think everything else uh, looks good, just needs time. It's been eight games so far, another 30 to go. By the time those 30 games are over, where do you want to be looking at when you look at Chelsea in the table? And, and what what's the sort of perfect situation for Chelsea under Pochettino going forward into the next season? Hmm, that's that's a pretty interesting question. I think I'm just trying to figure out whether this season can be sort of like a test season for long-term sustainability of a very ambitious experiment. Um, can you win anything with kids? Can you flip 20 million signings for more than what you signed them for? What is the floor and ceiling of a full-strength 11? And I'm hoping that we have at least 20 league games where we have our full 11 playing together week in, week out and managing enough to finish in a European competition slot. I think that's what I would ask for. I think it's too early to say position this, you know, trophy this. I would just say figure out how the squad dynamics are. I mean, just see what the upside of the player is and and where he can reach at the end of the season. If you think that there's enough scope for progression, then keep them and improve the other part of the equation. But if not, then try to figure out, get them playing together and see how the unit performs rather than how the individual performs. So I think that's where my focus is on squarely. Um, and at the end of the year, then hopefully we'll have a recruitment team look a little more with a microscope and figure out which of those individual links in that unit can be improved. And it's obviously only been a very small sample size so far, but looking back over the Pochettino era so far, how would you assess it? I'm going to put a disclaimer here and say I only speak for myself, but I've quite enjoyed it. I would say that it, um, I've had the privilege of watching it up close and it did seem to me like a bunch of very young, eager players who have bought into Porch's philosophy. And they're happy to be here. They're, they're sort of grateful for an opportunity to move from a loaded side to come to a team where they can offer the best of their talents at a higher level. I think we've picked out those promising hungry players. For example, Palmer knocking on the door at Manchester City. A lot of people thought that he would be Bernardo Silva's successor, probably come in, offer a little bit more. Uh, we sort of plucked him and said, can you do it now, starting from now in in a first-team environment? And and he's shown that he can. And it's the same with a lot of other players that we've signed as well. So, so to me, it looks a lot like Lampard's first season. You know, even with all of its highs and lows and watching a young team full of players I've seen at youth level for, for a long, long time, it was just extremely fulfilling to see them step up from the youth level and, and deliver at the first-team level. I think it, it was just... Amazing to see. As as somebody who's a scouting enthusiast, it was just great to see those kids who were 14, 15, running around in blue, just coming in and doing their job at a level that was demanded out of them. So I think that was great to see. Um, I assume that this season will go somewhere along the same way, but hopefully all the way to fourth place is is what I would say. And then one final question, if I may. I guess we've talked about the the near future. I guess I'm more interested in your opinion on the the longer term future of the Pochettino era at Chelsea. Do you have high hopes that you know in ten twenty years time we'll look back on this era uh, with with uh, I guess admiration and and respect for what Pochettino did? As somebody who does not know what he's going to eat for breakfast <laughs> tomorrow, that's probably the wrong question to ask me. But 
um, initial assessment would be very promising. I do believe we've made the right choice. Um, when I'm looking at the options available and and where we stand right now, I think there is no doubt that he's already enhanced our physical and conditioning profile. He's had a pretty positive impact on the younger individuals, which is very notable. And I believe if we continue making incremental gains across the existing score, I think we will deliver on a on a larger scale. So I think, um, like I think Chelsea fans as a collective hate the word it's transition. And it's a it's a project or it's vision 2030 and all those terms which require patience because this club is used to to success at a very immediate sort of, uh, you know, stage. They just want and demand it. And, and it's always been the club's been like that, even through chaos, we've thrived. But I think if we give him two years, if we give him two years of steady building, he can create a, a, a very, very good side that like Tottenham, uh, competes at a top three level consistently. Whether he's the right person to take us to, you know, being Manchester City, I don't know. But we often tend to forget that coaches like players also evolve, um, you know, across their across their careers. So hopefully Poch will be able to, to develop just like his players. Yeah, and the good news about becoming the next Manchester City is that um, Pep Guardiola is allegedly moving on in the next few seasons. So, you know, that space will open up. There will be space for a new Manchester City. So, yeah, I guess uh, the, the more optimistic Chelsea fans will be eyeing that up. But Sam, look, I could talk to you for much longer than than we have the time to do, but it's been great having you on to today. It's um, really always a pleasure to chat to you. Uh, for those of our listeners who want to follow you on Twitter, you are at CFC Central 3. That's the digit 3. Uh, and also you can be found found putting out lots of excellent content over at London is Blue, uh, which can be found on Twitter at London Blue Pod. And uh, obviously any good podcast aggregator will have uh, access to that podcast as well. So, Sam, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on today. A pleasure has been all mine. I will not say truer words for a long, long time. So thank you so much, John. Thank you for all you do. And please, please do continue doing it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm.